And welcome back to the Nomads and Empires podcast, episode 17. Last time, we talked about the nature of warfare in Scythian society. We examined their tools, their weapons, their tactics, and the Scythians are emblematic of other step groups that would come in time. However, and this may be an obvious point, we should not think of the Scythians in terms of their martial prowess solely. Though Greek and Roman authors may have viewed the Scythians as a horde of terrifying warriors, we should know by now that there is much more to these peoples than such generalized notions. That's why in today's episode, we're going to be examining the religious beliefs of the Scythians. Now, apologies in advance if my throat sounds a little shot, but I figured to record the episode now rather than delay it again, especially if my voice ends up getting worse. But anyway, The religious beliefs of the Scythians are a fascinating topic, and the Scythians once more show their diversity. Beliefs across the steppe likely deviated and changed even if some similar characteristics were maintained. As history marches along, the Scythians will become influenced by Greek and Persian ideas, and such influences will manifest in their own religious identity. To fully dive into this subject while recognizing the diversity of Scythian groups, we will split our discussion into several regions. First, we'll take a look at the Scythians of the Ponic Steppe, a group that we have a plethora of information on. Authors like Herodotus actually noted a considerable amount of information on the deities and practices of these Scythians, and further information can be derived from linguistic and archaeological evidence. Next, we'll examine the beliefs of Central Asian Scythians, such as that of the Saka groups. Finally, we'll look into the far extent of the Scythians, and analyze the religious views of those in the Scion Altai. Given the nature of our sources, there's going to be a lot more on the Pontic Scythians, but we will give each region some amount of attention today. After all of that, I want to spend a little bit of time going over the actual ways in which people practice these beliefs, including sacrificial and burial practices. That said, let's first start off by asking ourselves about the very core of religious practice in this region and time. Core ideas likely existed across the steppe. At the highest level, Scythian groups appeared to have worshipped a pantheon of deities, and such a pantheon shows clear signs of an Indo-Iranian origin. At the head of this pantheon was a deity of fire, and this is an important point. Gods of fire were of supreme significance on the early Eurasian steppes. Such deities were generally incorporeal, acting more as a force or a symbol rather than as a human-like being. Such a god was a manifestation of the political realm and was considered the protector of both the state and the ruling elite. This god of fire was represented by a central hearth that resided at the settlement of the Scythian king. Sacred oaths and agreements would be conducted on these very fires. The very essence of the Scythian polity could be defined by the sanctity of its central hearth. We are indeed talking about a physical fire pit, and the importance of this physical and spiritual hearth would come to play a key role across the steppe in later ages. The rulers of the first Turkic Haganet are known to have maintained a physical hearth that housed wooden or felt idols. 
The Turkic Khagans would offer sacrifices to this fire, as it was believed that the hearth connected the physical world directly to the spiritual world of their ancestors. Like the Scythians, Turkic leaders also believed that proper maintenance of the hearth was necessary for their own good fortunes. Professor Carter Finley recounts to us of a life force called Kut that emanated from the hearth, and how good Kut was needed to, quote, bring good fortune to a family or to convey the divine mandate of a ruler, unquote. Similar lines of connection can be seen in the next level of core deities. Here, below this primordial fire, the Scythians believed in a pair of beings, a sky father and an earth mother goddess. For the Scythians, the union of this god and goddess would be instrumental in giving rise to all other aspects of the world, including other deities. Like the god of fire, we can find cognates in the spiritual beliefs of the Turkic Haganet. The Turks believed in Tengri, the Sky Father, and Ume, the Mother Goddess. Indeed, the belief in an internal Sky Father would be common throughout the steppes and across the ages. Tengri is likely a familiar name to many of you listeners, but some scholars take a slightly more controversial opinion here. Professor Christopher Beckwith makes the argument that the high position of Tengri on the steppes is a Scythian development. He specifically claims that the Turks would take the term Tengri from the Scythian word Tandri. Moving past the realms of gods and goddesses, the Scythians are also known for the maintenance of important religious sites. Although many Scythian groups were nomadic, it appears that several physical areas played a key role in religious belief. The Central Asian Saka created monumental stones. One site found in modern Turkmenistan was probably, quote, a cult center for the nomadic tribes of the plateau beyond the Uzboy, unquote. The Pontic Scythians are said to have had a holy site somewhere near the Dnieper and Bug rivers. At such sites, animal sacrifices and shamanistic ceremonies likely occurred. Burial sites were also important. Kurgans filled with treasures of a Sitho-Siberian art style could be found all over the region, indicating perhaps some shared beliefs about the afterlife. From holy sites to earthen burials, we can clearly see some connections across the Pontic and Central Asian steppes. Of course, these concepts, though somewhat common throughout the steppe, were also subject to regional differences. Groups along the Pontic grasslands were influenced by their Thracian and Greek neighbors, while those in Central Asia would be impacted by Iranian and Median ideas. The reverse flow, that of Scythian influence on these regions, was also true. With that said, let's now turn our attention towards the Scythians of the Pontic Steppe as we dive a little deeper into their specific beliefs and practices. The Pontic Scythians worshipped a varying array of gods and goddesses. As we discussed in the last episode, the world of the Western Steppe is defined by diversity. Some groups were Scythian adjacent, some were distinct in their socioeconomic practices, while others weren't Scythian in the slightest. However, it appears that the Scythians here generally agreed on a pantheon of seven major deities. These deities, in turn, were divided into three tiers. At the top was Tabidi, 
goddess of fire and the central hearth. In the next level, we have Papeos, god of the sky, and Api, goddess of the earth. As we previously noted, the union of Papeos and Api of the sky and earth would give rise to the final rank of deities. In this tier, we have the gods Goito, Cyrus, Heracles, and Ares, as well as the goddess of Agrimpasa. Unsurprisingly, our main source for this information comes from Herodotus, which explains why we have Greek names for the deities. Indeed, every single god and goddess here is given a Greek equivalent. Tabidi is connected to the goddess Hestia, Papeos with Zeus, Api with Gaia, Goetosiros with Apollo, and Agrimpasa with Aphrodite. Then we have two gods who we only know by their Greek associations, Heracles and Ares. Such associations likely emerged from Greek interactions with the Scythians as Greek writers attempted to reconcile Scythian beliefs within their own worldview. Centuries of cultural overlap may have also resulted in the Pontic Scythians connecting their own gods and goddesses within a Greek cosmological space. Scythian artifacts containing images of Greek deities hint at this acceptance of a shared identity between Scythian and Greek gods and goddesses. With this in mind, let's dive a bit deeper. Tabidi, as I've already mentioned, was a goddess of fire and represented the hearth. This connection to fire is made even more apparent from linguistic evidence. The Indo-European root word top means to heat, and it is possible that Tabidi derives from the old Iranian word tapayadi, or the heater. Similar to the physical characteristics of fire itself, Tabidi was an incorporeal being rarely depicted in artifacts and pottery. And yet, despite this near-transient nature, Tabidi was perhaps the most important deity in the Scythian pantheon. Herodotus recounts to us an interaction between a Persian messenger and the Scythian king Identhyrsis. The incident would have taken place during the Persian invasion of the Western Steppe in the late 6th century BCE. Darius, through his messenger, hoped to goad the Scythians into a pitched battle. In this message, Darius even asserts himself as the master of the Scythians. King Identhyrsis, however, refused such a battle, and noted that, quote, For my masters, I count them to be Zeus Papeos, who is my ancestor, and Hestia Tabidi, queen of the Scythians, these only, unquote. Tabidi's high placement, the queen of the Scythians, is fascinating. It is even greater than the earth goddess Api. Tabidi was the representation of the Scythian polity. This connection is made even more clear when we consider Tabidi's connection to Hestia, a goddess who protected families and the state. Thus, Tabidi protected the king, his family, and his people, and this was represented by the central hearth maintained by the king. A further point to make about Tabidi is the presence of sacred objects that were kept near the hearth. These included a golden cup, a golden axe, and a golden plow. The origin of these items derives from a Scythian foundation myth where these golden objects fell from the sky. These objects were lit ablaze in flames and only the youngest of three legendary sons could take them. Through these items, 
and thus Tibidi's blessings, the youngest son would become king of the Scythians. We'll touch back on these origin myths in a later episode, but the connection between the divine fire of Tibidi and the legitimacy of the Scythian kings is quite clear. In addition to Tibidi, King Aidenthyrsis gives special reference to Papaeus as the ancestor of the royal Scythians. Papaeus appears in a number of Scythian origin myths. He is said to have consorted with Api, the earth goddess. In another myth, he mates with a river goddess, perhaps a daughter of the river Boristhenes. Through one of these unions, the royal line of the Pontic Scythians would emerge. Like other step groups, the designation of the Skyfather as a force of political legitimization should be noted here. What is perhaps different is one key detail Herodotus mentions to us. You see, the pantheon of seven deities is a little incorrect. Herodotus details to us that the royal Scythians also worshipped a god named Thagimasidus, a deity correlated to Poseidon. Poseidon, beyond his association with the sea, was also a god of horses, and so the connections between the Scythians and Thagimasidus makes a lot of sense. When taken together, the royal Scythians of the Pontic Steppe were connected to the gods in ways that increased their political legitimacy. Tabidi provided rulers with a connection to the spiritual world and offered them protection. Papaeus offered Scythian leaders with a direct genealogical connection to the divine, while Thagimacidus, who is a little more murky, connected directly with the Scythian nomadic lifestyle. As we move to the third line of deities, we reach a group of beings that were less abstract and much more human-like. Agrimpasa, or Aphrodite, was the goddess of fertility and marriage. Some scholars connect her directly to the Iranian goddess Arti. Agrimpasa plays an additional level of importance as she is credited with giving the Scythians the ability of divination. Herodotus explains that shamans, known as the Inaries, would divine the future through willow rods and splitting bark. We have less information on the god Goedo Cyrus, though his association with Apollo may indicate his status as a sun deity. Ares is also a god that we have limited information on, though we can safely guess that he was some sort of war god. We know that the Pontic Scythians would worship Ares by creating mounds of brushwood. Sacrifices of horses and cattle would be conducted at these sites. Prisoners of war were also sacrificed. Finally, Heracles exists as a deity here and is sometimes connected by scholars to the name Targitos. In some myths, it is Targitos, rather than Papaeus, who gives rise to the royal Scythians. We'll talk more about Heracles in a later episode, don't worry. And so, that's a quick summation of the pantheon worshipped by the Pontic Scythians. Herodotus makes it clear that all Scythians worshipped these gods and goddesses, though we should remain cautious about such blanket statements. We already know that the royal Scythians worshipped an additional god not found in the main pantheon, that of Thagimacidus. I think the words from Brill's companion to Herodotus are a good reminder here. Quote, 
It seems a safe guess that the religious beliefs of the various North Pontic peoples were animistic, with plenty of local peculiarities and an undogmatic capacity to absorb foreign elements, unquote. As we shift over to the central steppes, we are given much less information to work with. The groups here included a diverse array of people, and just like the Pontic region, they included Scythian peoples, Scythian-adjacent peoples, and non-Scythian peoples. Given that the pantheon we just discussed has Indo-Iranian origins, it's probable that many groups here also worship those very same gods. However, there were those that differed in their spiritual practices. One such group was the Masagate, a people considered to be Scythian. The Masagate are quite fascinating, and they'll play a prominent role in world history through their queen Tomyris, though that is a story for later. According to Herodotus, unlike their Pontic brethren, the Masagate only worshipped a single deity, the sun. To the sun, they would sacrifice horses. Scholars such as Abatekov and Yusupov connect this sun deity to the cult of Mithra. Therefore, beyond horse sacrifice, the Masagate may have also practiced a form of fire worship, which in turn would connect them back to the Pontic Scythians and to their own Indo-Iranian cousins. Another distinct development on the Central Asian steppes would be the influx of a more structured religious presence. Zoroastrianism, which emerged perhaps in the 6th century BCE, would slowly influence some Scythians. Various soccer groups likely became practitioners of Zoroastrianism due to cultural diffusion, as Central Asia remained a porous area that allowed the Persians and Medians to interact with their steppe counterparts. Professor Christopher Beckwith even notes that Zoroastrianism clashed directly with the worship of Mithra. So it is possible that religious conflict between the Zoroastrian Saka and the sun-worshipping Masagate occurred, though this is purely speculation on my part. As far as physical sites go, we know of the existence of a monumental stone in northwestern Turkmenistan. This particular structure was likely a cult center used by the steppe groups of the region. Evidence of animal sacrifice has been found via archaeological research. And now, as we move away from the central steppes, we return to the Altai Cyan region. Although this is considered the main birthplace of the Sitho-Siberian culture, we actually have scant details on the religious practices of the groups that resided here. We can imagine that some believed in a pantheon of gods similar to what we found in the Pontic Steppe. Perhaps the gods and goddesses here had more primordial origins, or perhaps outside influences from Mongolia and China reshaped their ideas. We really don't know what people believed in. Analysis of the Arzen 1 Kurgan reveals to us some potential details. As we remember from episode 7, the Arzen Kurgan represents what may be the earliest Scythian site. This burial contained a number of amazing treasures and artifacts that exhibit the familiar Sitho-Siberian art style. It is the arrangement and layout of the Kurgans that is of special interest to us today. According to Professor Barry Cunliffe, the Arzen Kurgan was constructed in a very peculiar way. 
the eastern and western parts of the Kurgan are oriented slightly differently. Cunliffe even speculates that the placement of logs emanating along a single point may embody, quote, a vision of the universe with the plan of the timber structures representing the radiating rays of the sun, unquote. One other intriguing find is that of a deer stone that was set at the top of the burial. The deer stone depicted a number of animals, including deer and pigs. Scholars have sometimes wondered if certain animals may represent specific spiritual notions. Images of stags could represent something like that of a soul departing the world. The usage of animal motifs as spiritual representations could explain why such designs were prevalent on deer stones and as tattoos on various mummies. Bodies from the Paziric culture contained tattoos that depicted this exact iconography. The Al-Alecha female, better known as the Ice Princess, had one arm tattooed with deer symbols. It's even possible that this female was a shaman of some sort. I think this discussion works as a good segue. Throughout this episode, we focused on the world of the heavens, but spiritual practices were equally important for one's final moments on the earth. The lands of the underworld, the passage of spirits from life to death, were all key considerations for all individuals in this region. Across the steppe, we know that groups created great burial mounds known as kurgans. In other episodes, we've talked about their treasures and what they reveal to us about the material culture of these Scythian groups, but now I want to tie in our discussion of religion with what these Kurgans actually represented. It is clear, from all the evidence we've seen thus far, that the Scythians placed a significant degree of emphasis on death. How people were buried, why, and where were all important questions to many peoples living on the steppe. We can start off by answering the question of where Kurgans are located. Kurgans have been found all over the steppe. The Solacha Kurgan, dated to around the 4th century BCE, is located in the Zaporizhia region of Ukraine. The barrel Kurgans of the Saka can be found near Almaty, Kazakhstan, and we know that the Arzin and Paziric Kurgans lie in the Sion Altai. A more interesting question is why specific areas were chosen. It is clear that the steppe nomads sought to build kurgans near rivers and streams. In the Minisink region, a vast majority of the kurgans were built along the Yenisei River and its tributaries. The same trend applies in the other parts of the steppe. In the central steppe, Scythian kurgans lined with the Ural River, while on the Ponic side of things, Kurgans could be found along the Don, the Cuban, and Dnieper rivers. Once a site had been chosen, several Kurgans would be built. Kurgans were generally built in groups with a large mound surrounded by a number of smaller ones. In some particular areas, the density of Kurgans was so high that they resembled necropolises or grave landscapes. One could see an area of rolling hills that stretched on for some while. In reality, these hills would all be graves. For example, in Kazakhstan, we have found over 70 of the aforementioned barrel kurgans. The tallest of these kurgans were about as high as a three-story building with a base diameter of over 100 meters. 
The Arzen 1 Kurgan measured at around 110 meters in diameter and 4 meters in height. These Kurgans could be constructed from stone, wood, or a mixture of materials. However, the upper portion was simply a roof for a wider system that was dug into the ground. As Professor Renate Roll explains, quote, The basic structural principle of the catacomb graves, which can, however, differ widely, consists of a descent usually leading steep down from the original surface with a corridor or a short passage opening into a cave-like burial. The descent usually has steps going down on the side which made access easier. The descents are in fact shafts which go down between 33 and 49 feet deep. The underground passages are sometimes like tunnels, reaching the considerable length of 98 feet and occasionally branching off. The chambers themselves are spacious, usually rounded, hollowed-out areas, and further side chambers, alcoves, and other recesses are built into the walls." Unquote. Interred in these graves were Scythian elites. The bodies of such rulers have been accompanied by women, other men, and horses. Horse gear, jewelry, and golden artifacts have been found in many of these graves. It is evident that the Scythians possibly believed that these items would join the deceased in the afterlife. Professor Roll even speculates that some Scythians may have feared retribution from evil spirits. The items were thus offerings of appeasement in the hope that the dead would be too distracted by gold and jewels to enact vengeance on the living. Indeed, scholars like Claudia Cheng even posit that the Kurgans themselves acted as reminders. Commoners over the generations would commemorate the leaders of the past. However, as time moved on, other connotations would slowly emerge around these graves. Contemporary folk stories have mentioned strange sights and sounds emanating from these burial sites, perhaps the sounds of spirits still feasting in the afterlife. Now, our discussion has focused on the construction of the Kurgans and the items placed within, but we actually have some interesting information on the mourning practices of the Scythians. These death rituals would have taken place in the lead-up to placing the corpses in the Kurgan. According to Herodotus, the Pontic Scythians have a very established funerary tradition. Upon the death of a king, the Scythians would cut open the corpse and take out the innards. The body would then be cleaned, preserved with wax, incense, anise, and other materials. From there, the king's corpse would be placed on a wagon, and he would be paraded throughout his lands. After 40 days had passed, the king would be ready for his burial. The king would be placed in the innermost chamber of the Kurgan. A number of other individuals would join the king in the afterlife. We are told that the king's wife or main concubine, his wine-bearer, his cook, groom, valet, and message-bearer were all strangled and buried with their liege. Archaeological evidence also suggests that a celebratory feast would be held in honor of the deceased king. This funerary feast was held outside of the Kurgan, where vast quantities of horses, goats, sheep, and cattle were all killed. Professor Cunliffe points out that there may not have been just one feast, and that the evidence can suggest either a single banquet or a number of celebratory feasts held over a period of time. 
We know that the Scythians would commemorate the deceased a year after the burial, so it's possible that they conducted several feasts in that window. Herodotus recounts to us an interesting tradition that would have taken place one year after the death of a king. Once a year had passed, the Scythians would strangle 50 able-bodied men and 50 horses. These individuals and animals would be preserved in a manner similar to the king. The Scythians would then place the horses and men on wooden stakes, with the strangled men seemingly riding on top. In this way, the Kurgan would be surrounded by a host of ghostly riders. As Professor Roll describes, quote, Seen from a distance, these riders arranged in a circle round the foot of the mound must have given the eerie impression of being alive, unquote. Such were the practices of those who we can assume were in a privileged class. Thankfully, we actually are told about the burials of those from more humble backgrounds. Quote, but as of the rest of the Scythians, when they die, their nearest relatives carry them around among their friends on wagons. Each friend receives and entertains those who follow the procession and offers a share of all the food to the dead man, the same as to everyone else. For 40 days, all these people who are not kings are carried round in this way, and then they are buried. When they have buried the dead, the relatives purify themselves as follows. They anoint and wash their heads. As to their bodies, they set up three sticks, leaning them against one another, and stretch over these woolen mats. And having barricaded off this place as best as they can, they make a pit in the center of the sticks and the mats and throw it into red-hot stones." Unquote. Once again, the idea of a 40-day spiritual period rears its head. Furthermore, we get some indication of ritualistic cleansing, which I can imagine was also present during the burials of more elite figures. There are some other interesting tidbits that I've not mentioned. In some of these burials, we have found hemp seeds, indicating the potential use of cannabis in spiritual and funerary practices. In others, archaeologists have found severed fingers. The reason for such self-mutilation is unknown, but we can speculate that such extreme action may have represented a sign of devotion to the dead ruler. To close this section, I want to highlight this observation. Most of what we've discussed so far comes from Herodotus and therefore refers to the cultural beliefs of the Pontic Scythians. What is interesting is that across the steppe, there remain common practices. For instance, many Kurgans contain horse remains, food, and stone markers placed on top of the site. Most importantly, I believe these Kurgans maintained a high level of symbolic significance across the Eurasian grasslands. They were testaments of rulership, markers of place and time, and proof of the Scythians' existence. Thus, I will end with a quote. The following passage once again details the message King Identhyrsis would give to the messenger of Darius, king of the Persians. Quote, if you need must come to fight with us quickly, there are our father's graves. Find them and try to ruin them, and you will discover whether we will fight you or not for the graves. Before that, we will not fight unless some argument of our own takes possession of us. 
That is all I have to say to you about a fight. Unquote. And I think I'll leave us to ponder on that quote. Throughout this episode, we talked about the different religious ideas that permeated across the steppe, save for Mongolia. We've seen the various gods and goddesses, sacrificial practices, and spiritual motifs. We talked about Scythian shamans and Scythian burials. It is an area rich in diversity and yet held together by a tapestry that would showcase common motifs throughout the ages. There would be a sky father and earth mother. There would be a reverence for ancestors and a deep caution for the world of the dead. There would be a reverence for ancestors and a deep caution for the world of the dead. Outside influences would push their way into the grasslands, though slowly, for a time. Today, we talked about the spiritual world of the Scythians. Next time, we will examine something a bit more physical, though perhaps deeply related. I want to actually dive into the Sitho-Siberian art style I've mentioned so often. We'll take a look at the defining features of said art, the outside influences that would impact it, and why we believe in the shared cultural continuum from the steppes of Ukraine to the Sinaltai. And after that, we're going to start the narrative. Finally, I just want to say that this podcast has received a huge jump in viewership, and I couldn't be happier. Thank you so much to everybody that has listened and to all of you who have sent questions and corrections. It's been a blast working on these episodes, and I hope you continue to enjoy what I got. If you could please review and tell your friends, it would be greatly appreciated. And with that, thank you again. See you all next time on the windy plains of the Everlasting Steppe.